Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Light On, our bi-monthly video series that brings to light the latest and greatest human capital and business topics. Today, I am joined by two experts from our wealth business to talk about the future of financial well-being and how plan sponsors can make sure that they are supporting the financial needs of their people throughout their savings journey. Now, please join me in welcoming Allison Borland, our Executive Vice President of Wealth Strategy and Solutions, and Rob Austin, the Vice President and Head of Research at Alight. Thank you both for joining today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Of course. So before we do get started, I would like to remind our viewers that if you have any questions today for Allison or Rob, please put them in the queue box on the right-hand side of your console, and we will make sure to follow up with you at the end of today's episode. Now, diving right in, you know, financial health is more top of mind than ever for workers given today's climate. And as organizations figure out how to best support their people, now really is the time to look towards the future. So I think a good starting point today for our viewers would really be understanding what current state for financial well-being initiatives is, and then identifying what some of those key upcoming trends are. So let's start with the big picture here. If you had to boil employer-provided financial well-being trends down to a single word, could you please pick that word and explain why? Rob, I'll, I'll have you kick things off. So just one word, Dom. Um, I, I think one. I would pick, yeah, I would think I'd pick um, growth for my word. Um, we've been talking to employers for, for a long time through our hot topics in retirement and financial well-being study. And the one thing that really comes clear on that is that financial well-being programs are growing. It, it, two-thirds of employers tell us that they have a greater focus on financial well-being over the last two years. And now it's 92% of employers who say that they are very likely or moderately likely to focus on financial well-being programs beyond just retirement decisions. And if I go back and I look at like the last like five, 10 years of hot topics, um, we find that, that that percentage at 92%, it's more than doubled over that time. So we know for sure that's, that's higher than things like measuring the competitive position of the plan or, or projecting retirement income adequacy for people. So it's really grown over the last few years. And so I think for my word, I, I would pick growth, but, but Allison, I'm interested, what word would you pick? Yeah, so this is one word is hard. And so I'm thank you, Don, for making Rob go first. Um, <laughs> the, as I was thinking about it, I think the word I would pick is connected. And I mean that in a few different dimensions. So so first of all, if you if you launch a financial wellness program in a silo, it's it's harder to get engagement and it's harder to communicate and on an ongoing basis. So I'd say, so first of all, connect it to the total well-being program, right? Drive a healthy, um, a healthy body, healthy mind, healthy wallet, and healthy life. And when there's a comprehensive program there and it's all integrated, individuals, you can communicate and individuals understand the whole program. And then they can flex and navigate around the different dimensions based on their needs at that time. Um, that's especially important if you think about any kind of life event, whether it's an illness, whether it's a a marriage, a death, a birth, when you have all of that support in one place, you're more likely to pull the different levers. So that's one dimension of connected. Um, a second sort of more, I'd say more tactical targeted dimension of connected is with enrollment. So that could be enrollment and benefits for a new hire, or it could be annual enrollment. And there you've got someone who's, you know, sitting there making all of their choices about how to spend their entire paycheck. And they have the opportunity through the system to sort of automatically purchase and use those services and solutions with their paycheck. 
So it's an awesome opportunity to pull in other initiatives and other um, types of support that the individual could use while they're there, you know, on their computer, or on their phone, um, making those choices. And, and we've seen real substantial increases in retirement plan participation, for example, engagement in retirement checkups when it's integrated into that enrollment. So, so that's the second dimension of connected. And a third um, connected is sort of like putting it all in one place. So don't make separate websites, separate experiences, more that individuals have to learn. They have a lot on their minds every day, but especially right now. So having a single website, a single phone number, a single phone app that pulls all of these dimensions together makes it that much easier for individuals to engage and to use it. So I got three things out of one word. So um, I'm, I like that one. Let's go to the next one though. That's efficiency. So, Allison, I'm going to have you start this time around. Um, but, Rob, you briefly touched on the employer perspective. So, Allison, what I wanted to know from you is from the employee perspective, what are we hearing from workers? And frankly, what do they want from their employers when it comes to financial well-being initiatives? Yeah, great. Okay. So, so I, what we're hearing is that they want a lot and that they need a lot and the needs and the wants have both increased, right, um, during this pandemic. And so when we think about the messages that we hear um, and we look back to the, the sort of historical um, construct of benefits, you know, really the way benefits evolved were based on the tax code, right? So your medical plan benefit and your dental plan benefit and your 401k benefit and your pension benefit and then HSAs expanded and they each have their own rules and regulations and they've often been managed in a silo. So we all know that, right, who are in the space. So when we think about what individuals want, they want the flexibility to choose out of uh, the sort of broad spectrum of the things that they need to make their life better, not necessarily driven by the tax code. So while we still have to live within the constructs of the tax code because they're, it's still there and that's the law, um, we, there's things we can do leveraging technology, leveraging communication and engagement, leveraging AI and analytics, all the new innovations from the past few years to deliver more um, flexibility to make the choices that are right for those individuals when they need it. Um, so so I, think that's, I think that's how I'd answer that question. And, and when we when we've um, started to move down that line with certain organizations, it tends to be very, very well received and it doesn't necessarily have to add additional costs. So there's a good balance there. And really, Allison, I think what you're talking about a little bit here is, is some personalization for people. And, and, and that's what comes through in the surveys when we talk to, to workers across the U.S. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of sit there and say that there's a lot of needs that people have for financial priorities across the whole spectrum. But, but if we kind of boil this down by generations, what we hear is things like the Gen Zers and the Millennials, those on the, on the younger end of the age spectrum, they're most focused on things like, like managing their debt and establishing establishing a budget. We know Gen Xers are most focused on establishing uh, an emergency fund. We know baby boomers are most focused on, on retirement income adequacy, right? So, so there is definitely some different priorities. In it, but even within those generations, we see more personalization that's needed. So, you know, for example, it might be really easy to say, okay, hey, that debt management for the Gen Zers and, and the millennials, that's student loan programs. But what we know is it's only about 40% of, of the people in those generations have an outstanding student loan. And don't get me wrong, 40% big number, student loan programs, definitely something that's needed. But you can't necessarily make the assumption that, okay, well, that's exactly what everybody needs. Um, it needs to be something that's a little bit more, more personalized. Um, I think the other thing, too, with personalization is, is being able to find that 
resource to find those tools at the time that you need it. If, if there's anything at all that we've learned from 2020 here, it's that things can change very, very quickly. And, and maybe where we were at the beginning of the year is totally different from where we are now. Maybe we had a, a spouse who's, who's been furloughed or, or cut back or, or had to stop her job. And, and all of a sudden now we're living off of you know, one paycheck and, and, and those budgeting tools that we didn't think were necessarily applicable at the beginning of the year are, are super applicable right now. So being able to find that super important and I think the other part too is, and Allison touched upon this, using the data that's that's available to, to, to give people the resources when they need it. So, you know, for example, you have a baby, right? A lot of employers will know about that. That might be a great time to give some outreach about saying, hey, why not set up a, a college savings fund at this time? Or maybe life insurance is a really important thing for you right now. So, so harnessing the power of the data to, to get people those tools and that resource when they need it so that way they can they can apply it during the gravity of the situation. So Rob, do you regret not choosing personalization as your one word now? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, I was actually gonna say that exact same thing. I, I you know, I think we talk about personalization in almost every aspect of our business. And I think it's just so important to pull up on the fact that every one of our participants truly does have a different need. And it's our job and it's plan sponsors' job to make sure that we support our people throughout their own savings journey towards a successful future. Um, and so you know, as you know, we framed right now the upcoming trends, what people want, what employers are doing, let's dive into now more nuts and bolts of how organizations can actually develop and incorporate the financial well-being initiatives into their existing retirement or frankly their broader benefits offering. So Allison, you know, going back to Connected and, and you talked previously about integrating financial health into well-being programs, what are some ways that employers can influence financial health outside of the retirement? retirement plan. Got it. Okay. So when we say outside of the retirement plan, what I think we're talking about is incorporating um, a broader definition of a healthy wallet, things like emergency funds, things like student debt management, things like budgeting, some of the things we've already mentioned in passing in this call. And so there's a few different ways to do that because um, it, can, it can seem like a whole bunch of different fragmented solutions and you throw spaghetti at the wall and you hope employees find them. That's a tough sell, right? And what you really want to do is no one's going to use all of those programs, but you want the right people to use the right ones that are going to have the biggest impact. Um, so a few different sort of themes or tips to, to make that work. First of all, use multiple channels. So web, digital, proactive outreach via email, even maybe text, um, proactive um, mail, um, old school mail to individuals' homes with postcards, et cetera. Um, respect, respecting that diversity of the, of the world and the population, leverage multiple ways to actually get people what they need. Um, Second, we do continue to see in our surveys that that some perceive it as old fashioned, but in person conversation and help is highly, highly effective. During a pandemic, it's also highly, highly difficult. So how can you try to recreate that in person feeling, whether it's through video, you know, online webinars, um, you know, as, as time goes on, we'll be able to go back to that in person, but giving individuals that one on one coaching continues to have um, continues to re receive great feedback and a lot of times, um, whether it's webinars, you know, seminars, if you look at the credentials of the individuals presenting them, um, they often have the capability and the breath to talk about much more than the retirement plan, right, they have they may have CFPs or um, you know, broad training that allows them to flex across all of those different financial topics. I'd say the last theme to really keep in mind is trust, right? There's no free lunch. Individuals to get that kind of help, that higher touch help, 
you want to look at conflicts of interest, you want to look at revenue streams, you want to look at how the firm, as well as the individual is actually compensated, because employees, you know, money is deeply personal. And if you don't have a strong sense of trust, with the individual that's helping you, it's, it's going to de deteriorate um, that relationship and deteriorate the kind of help. So keep that in mind, just as, you know, it's good to, to think about that as you evaluate, you know, the pros and cons of different approaches and, and the kind of help you need. But I think with those guardrails, thinking about the ability to provide broader help, that will, you know, that will maybe make it a little bit easier. And then, so I guess, Rob, now on the other side of the wheelhouse, how are there small steps that employers could take to incorporate some of these financial well-being initiatives within the retirement plan offering? So the, so the end of the end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about a DC plan here, right, you know, there's sort of three main phases. Get, get money in the plan, grow the money that's in the plan, and then take the money out of the plan. And, and if I look at each one of those phases, I, I think there are definitely things that we see employers uh, doing that, that that's going to improve people's financial well-being. So let, let's focus on each one of those. If I think about getting money in the plan, we know things like automatic enrollment and contribution escalation. Those are proven levers that work. Um, it's about 75% of large employers have automatic enrollment. And what we see is those employers are, are starting to push the, the default rates higher, put that, that contribution escalation ceiling even higher. So people are saving even more. And in fact, the, the SECURE Act that was passed uh, late in 2019, um, that will allow some employers to, to go even higher with their contribution escalation than, than they could in the past. Um, so that's getting money in the plan. If I look at the money that's already in the plan and kind of growing that, one thing that we hear is, is managed accounts. Uh, that's a great, oh, yeah. great tool, right? And so it's about two thirds of large employers have a managed account in their plan. And, and uh, when we talk to those employers, it's 99%, almost everybody says that they are, are effective, either very effective or moderately effective. So, and, and that's borne out in the research that we have too. When we looked at people's returns, what we found is that people who use those help tools like managed accounts, they, they did much better than people who tried to go it alone. And that's all net of fees. And then if I look at that last phase about getting money out of the plan, we do see a lot of employers taking steps to, to sort of say, hey, you know what, don't use the money that's marked for retirement and, and take a lot of loans against this. Don't have abuse with the loans um, and, and take some steps to, to, to mitigate against loan abuse. We also are, are really proud of the fact that, that we just entered into a partnership with Retirement Clearinghouse. And, and what happens here is uh, people, when they change jobs, could see their balances automatically move from, from their current employer's plan to their new employer's plan. They don't necessarily need to, to take all the action to, to transfer it on themselves. It would be done automatically. So that will, I think, do an awful lot to, to see the retirement leakage that, that occurs when people change jobs. So, so Dom, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just kind of touched on the tip of the iceberg, but I think any way we kind of look at DC plans, there are certain steps that employers are taking to, to help improve financial well-being. Definitely. So actually, before we do move on, we received an audience question um, from one of our uh, members of the audience ahead of today's episode that I did want to share because it, it briefly touches on something that you brought up earlier, Allison. Um, and so I'd like to go to that before we move on. Um, the question reads that our organization has not yet returned to our physical workspace. So what tips do you have to make sure that your people or our people rather can remain engaged in their financial well-being while at home? 
Got it. Um, yeah, so that's really hard, right? This is um, an unusual time and we have a, a mix of workers. We have those workers who are at home, like the ones referenced in that question in front of a computer every day, um, but who aren't in the office. So you don't have the in-office opportunities. And then there are other essential workers who are out and about, right, um, regularly. And reaching both of those is really important given the level of financial strain. Um, so, so a few tips. If you think about first individuals who are you know, at their desk, at their computer, but at home, think about how they're interacting with the systems every day. Are they logging in? Do they see an internet automatically when they um, access the network every morning? Do they access a, a place where they enter their time into the system, for example? Um, and for those who are out and about, actually, this is relevant too. They may be doing that on a mobile app or, or in some other way, um, but there's, there's often some sort of technology that they're interacting. Great place to incorporate highly personalized messages and reminders to help them engage. Um, so whether it's on the internet and there's a message to take action because they you know, haven't signed up for a budgeting webinar and we can see that we think they need it, there's a lot of ways to sort of leverage the existing infrastructure that individuals are already using at home to potentially encourage those messaging. Um, we already talked about the importance of multi-channel, so I, I would just sort of highlight that again here, um, because they are at home, they, they may have more access to mail than they normally do. In other words, they may be checking it every day, which maybe they don't. Um, so don't need to go into that lot of, a lot of detail. We've covered that, but multi-channels is actually important. Um, and then the last, I think the final thing I'd say is when you think about the kind of the workplace right now, one thing to double check is the hours that help is available. Oh, yeah. And especially if you have individuals who work across time zones, given the level of kind of frustration and, and what's happening with work, make sure that there's help available when individuals are actually able to access it. Um, you know, so they can, they have someone who can actually pick up the phone or they can speak to, um, or if, you know, their webinars and seminars, make sure there's recorded versions so individuals have the flexibility to access them outside of uh, when they're, you know, need to be focused and working, especially for essential workers. So um, not that there's there's no silver bullet, um, you know, the word unprecedented is just used way too much right now because everything every day is unprecedented, um, but navigating through and providing the, you know, the right kind of support and the right touch points right now will help everybody get through this difficult period, maybe just a little bit easier. Definitely. I'm, I'm glad we got to touch on the virtual work aspect. I think, you know, obviously we're on a, a Zoom call right now from our own homes um, talking about this topic. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers are also grappling with potentially return to work plans for 2021. Maybe people are staying in virtual settings. So definitely something important that we should all be keeping a close eye on as we get closer to year end. Um, but before we do close out our conversation today, um, I think it's really important that we do touch on the importance and, you know, frankly, what are some expected outcomes? that employers can look towards. So um, I'll just dive right into, you know, the, the blunt question here. How can we measure the success of an organization's financial wellness initiative? Yeah, I'll take that one, Allison, if you don't mind. I mean, because because we have some data in our in our Hot Topics report about that. It, but, but Dom, I think if we talk about outcomes and measurements on that, I think we almost need to, to sort of start with what are the goals? What are the reasons that employers yeah. are offering these financial well-being programs? And, and, and we asked employers that in, in our Hot Topics survey. And, and, and what they, they tell us, it's about half of employers say, I want to go ahead and do this to, to improve my retirement plan statistics. We know it's about 20% of employers say, I want to do this to decrease my medical plan costs. And, and for those employers, you know, it, there's that benchmark that's already set there. Well, go ahead and look at what the retirement plan statistics are as part participation improved? Has savings rates improved? Has, has loans, has that percentage decreased? Uh, medical costs, right? H how have they changed over time? 
But what gets a little bit more difficult is we see it's like 80% of employers say a little bit more altruistic reasons, things like we want to improve the employee experience or we're doing this because we think it's the right thing to do. And and those are great reasons. Don't get me wrong. And and, and I totally agree with those. But that does make it a little bit more difficult to measure. So when we ask those employees, well, how are you going to go ahead and and judge success? How are you going to to evaluate your programs? Uh, What we hear from most of them saying, well, the first thing I want to do is I just want to look at utilization. Uh, If we're offering a tool or a service, let's find out how many people are using this. And and furthermore, let's let's put that number in context. You heard me talk before about student loan programs and it's only 40% of a certain generation. Well, don't expect that student loan program to have 100% of people, right? You may not know who's even got a student loan, but you probably can figure out that it's not every single person who has it, right? So, so keep the numbers that you see for utilization in the context of, of, of what other benchmarks are for the, the utilization of those tools. So really, Dom, you know, when we talk about outcomes, you almost sort of need to take the step back and say, well, what are the goals and what are the, what are the um, objectives that an employer has for, for putting these in in the first place? Yeah. Hey, Rob, I know you said you would take that question, but I'd like to add just one more kind of yeah. layer um, on top of your fantastic answer. Um, when we think about kind of long term and, and next gen, you know, there's been there's a lot of talk in the markets or, or in, in, in industry around AI and um, data and analytics. And, and one of the one of the areas we continue to look into is when we think about the long term impact financial wellness could have. Um, in theory, like depending on your industry and what's really important, if individuals are more likely to show up at work um, because they have money to cover, a, you know, a, a flat tire on their way to work or some other um, event that's going to prevent them from being on time, it can impact attendance, which can have a big, big impact overall. It can impact productivity through giving individuals more headspace because they're not worried about financials. It can decrease stress. It has a lot of um, uh, connections to a lot of levers that actually impact real business performance. And when we look across all the data that we have at Alight around, you know, payroll and health and wealth, we're actually able to pull a lot of that together and be able to track and measure some of those higher level business impactful um, metrics on an ongoing basis um, that we can start to connect to some of these initiatives and really drive a, a greater and broader ROI especially in the context of total well-being, but even in in the healthy wallet area, right? Um, So, you know, more to come um, over time as we continue to dig in. We're doing some great sort of testing and piloting of some of those um, concepts. Um, So there's kind of short-term and long-term, and I think a lot of really good big ideas coming um, on this topic. So we're, we're getting pretty excited about those too. So sorry to pile on there, Rob, but. Oh, it's great. We're talking about, yeah. Yeah, no, I think those are both really good calls. And Rob, thank you for bringing up, you know, talking about the multiple reasons for adding financial well-being programs to begin with. I think that's a super important baseline that we should discuss. Um, So I guess last question for you both. um, What common roadblocks do plan sponsors face as they try to implement financial well-being? Yeah. So, so again, we have data on this from uh, from our hot topics report, right? And 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 what um, we hear is it, it's about ninety percent, even a little bit higher than that, of, of employers say that there's at least a roadblock of some sort when they go ahead and and try to implement a financial well-being program of their dreams. And 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 the most common roadblock that we hear is just competing benefit priorities. Um, it, just not enough bandwidth. I can't tell you how many times I talk to an employer and they say, "I love this idea. I, I just can't do it right now. But let's put it on the back burner and we'll get to it like a, a, as quickly as we can." We'll put it maybe next year that we can do something. Uh, The the other roadblock that we hear sometimes is 
is budgets to the extent that there is a, a hard dollar cost that's associated with it. it sometimes getting that budget in can, can be a little bit, a little bit tricky and a little bit um, cumbersome. But, but even if there are the, the bandwidth, even if there is a bandwidth and even if there is the, the budget to, to put these in, um, one of the roadblocks that we do here is some employees are apprehensive with sharing financial data with their employer. Uh, it, overall, when we when we talk to workers, it's about a third of all workers across the U.S. that say that they they have trouble with with sharing their financial information with their employer. And and not surprisingly, that that changes by generation. Younger generations, people that grew up with social media, they're much more comfortable doing this. But it's about half of the baby boomer generation say that they are, have some reticence about sharing their financial data with their employer. And, and, you know, you use the word roadblock, and I, I sometimes think about when, do, when am I comfortable sharing data? Um, and so one thing that I do is, you know, if, if I'm out driving my car, uh, a lot of times I'll pull up a map or I'll use like a GPS or something that will navigate me around literal roadblocks, whether that's traffic or whether that's a, a road that's under construction or what have you. Um, and, and so the thing that, that I come back to is there's a value that I'm receiving for that. Um, yes, I'm sharing data, but I'm now able to to use the data that that I'm sharing to get a better outcome for me. And, and I think that lesson certainly applies with financial tools and services as well, right? If I'm going to share data, I'll, I'll do that if I think that there's value. And so what I think it's it's up to to all of us who who are servicing these products and, and, and sharing this and employers to to showcase that value to the workers who might be using this so that way we can get some comfort behind that. So so Dom, are there roadblocks? Yes. Are there some ways to kind of get around this? I, I think yes, and a lot of this is is sharing some some value behind it. Definitely. Well, I really appreciate both of your time for, for joining us today and for sharing all this excellent insight with our viewers. Um, if you're watching and you want to learn more about Allison, Rob, or today's topic, there's additional resources on the right-hand side of your column, and I highly encourage you to check them out. I'd also like to encourage you to stay tuned next month, where we put a light on benefits technology and integration. We'll always be here to shed a light on the latest human capital and business topics. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next month. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.